0: Susan Fisher Sterling, director of the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., has built her career and the stature of the museum around the message of equity for women through excellence in the arts. Sterling has dedicated her entire career to advancing the museum's mission. She spent her first 20 years organizing exhibitions and publications of contemporary women artists until assuming the directorship in 2008. In 2017, she was named one of the most powerful women in Washington by Washingtonian Magazine.
1: Susan Fisher Sterling, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank
2: you, it's very nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Mia.
1: The National Museum of Women in the Arts, uh, such a needed um, institution. I guess you've been there now over 30 years since. Just tell us how you came to it and your vision coming in and how things have changed
2: oh that's a (laughs) i love that question um so uh i uh, came to work at the national museum of women in the arts uh 32 years ago and i had a job as the adjunct the junior curator the associate curator uh, at the museum at that time when I joined the museum, the museum had been open for one year. The director uh, was Anne Radice, who worked with our founder, Mrs. Holliday, Wilhelmina Cole Holliday. And a year afterward, uh, Anne, who had a certain expertise uh, in uh, art history and was also an architectural historian, did a lot to help uh, with the revitalization of our building, the renovation of the building to go from a Masonic temple to a museum. And then she and Mrs. Holliday together created the first year of programming. But after that, the museum, they realized that the museum needed curators, which I thought was a very good step toward continued professionalization, as one would say. And so uh, Helene Posner and I were hired to be the uh, curator of modern and contemporary art and the associate curator. And that's sort of how I got into my job. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, I had just finished my uh, PhD in art history and a fellow at the Smithsonian at the Hirshhorn Museum uh, and Sculpture Garden. And I had come to believe that I would, well, as much as I loved uh, academic work and had enjoyed teaching, that um, one of the things I learned at the Hirshhorn was and actually it sort of takes me back to my roots as a, ch- as a kid at the Cleveland Museum of Art, I actually realized that I, I enjoyed working with the objects. And I also knew that in contemporary art, it, in a way for me, it was ch- more interesting, perhaps, to create exhibitions, uh, to think about collections, uh, than it was to think about uh, topics from a more academic point of view. And so I felt that moving from the academic world into the curatorial and museum world would probably give me a greater opportunity to publish uh, and uh, to work with artists in a more direct way and also to help the, whatever museum I worked for build, uh, build a collection. Uh, what was especially exciting about the National Museum of Women in the Arts is I realized I'd be, we'd be able to build a collection from the start and the idea of a startup at that time especially a startup that was not taken well i guess the best expression would be that the museum was controversial and somehow as a slightly contrarian human being i uh, really took to the idea that the museum uh, was controversial that a lot of men said why do you need a women's museum um, there are so many other museums, aren't women, you know, why are women, why do women have to be separated? Um, I think feminists also said similar things sometimes. Do we need to have a separate museum for women or couldn't we just make sure that women are in all the other museums? And um, it's interesting too because the some of the people who were more conservative more traditionalists would say things like, well, we're not sure we like this feminist concept. So it was very interesting to see the triangulation of opinions about the museum. And I'm always up for a challenge. So I figured if everybody was, uh, if people were really talking about this museum um, and that talk, that discussion was putting them on the map, then maybe the founder who was a patrician woman herself maybe she had something and that people were really worried about this museum and that maybe it had uh, some real potential that I could be a part of. Well obviously that must have played out because you know 32 years later uh, here I am uh, still uh, working away at a concept that frankly now has become viable and is seen as really important. So it's just interesting how time can sometimes change people's opinions. And I'm glad we've been able to do that.
1: I so agree. I mean, you know, once you do something that's troubling for people, and it's great how now it's become part of the conversation and there is a real movement. But mm-hmm. I, ha- I just have to interject. And also I have to you know, admit I have a skin in the game. As they say, I'm an artist too. Um, I, heard, <laughs> I heard that. And I can't believe this, but s- is it true that 6% of Collections are by women uh, in, in museums are by women artists. Is that still or
2: is that changing? Well, we know that so it's changing some. Um, that was a figure from a number of years ago that we now know that about 13%, at least in US collections, 13% of collections are worked by women, but of the amount hanging on the wall. A lot of that information is still anecdotal. So it's very hard to tell, but it is certainly pot what we see in terms of exhibitions, especially the information that ArtNet published just this past year, I believe it's fourteen percent of solo exhibitions, fourteen percent were women artists, uh, solo exhibitions. So if you, take a look and think about the change that has happened. There has been change, but it's been quite incremental. And so continuing to have an institution like the Women's Museum that pushes this agenda and showcases great talents each and every day, there's a real, still a real place for that in the world. Um, and I really do with COVID-19, with the pandemic, with what the aftermath of that is in terms of cultural institutions and what they choose to work on. uh, I do have a particular concern now that I hope will be unfounded, but nonetheless a concern, that there could be retrenchment because it's harder to introduce a new artist to the world than it is to show an artist who's well known. And so the question becomes, will museums go back to their, the old habit of, you know, okay, Picasso sells, Matisse sells, you know, Pollock sells. And um, well, so what about uh, Sonia Clark? <laughs> <laughs> will be our um, uh, major exhibition uh, this coming spring. Where, do, where will Sonia Clark fit into the larger Um, world of museums. So I I think that um, the figures this last time, frankly, I thought, even I thought we were doing better in terms of women's representation. I had heard numbers, and I think this is still true for the galleries, of 33, sometimes 40 percent, especially in major metropolitan areas. But now, but I, again, I'm, I'm just not so sure how many galleries will continue to exist, uh, what the viability is of, the, uh, of women in the gallery system. So I think these are things we're going to find out over the next five years.
1: And this may be interesting for you. Mm-hmm. Our project, The Creative Process, you know, we work with the universities and schools and students. Do you know we get people signing up to, to take part? And I was surprised, 90% of them are women. So this idea, you know, so it's really about they've been gatekeepers, right. and so that just shows you the museums or the people are not not allowing oh voices in. But when you ask who is interested, and I think yeah. that's a fairly represent that's a fairly de- democratic because we're sharing things and they're hearing about us and coming to
2: us. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I absolutely agree. It reminds me a lot of if you if you know the history of photography, which is one of my favorite. Uh, subjects in grad school so many women so many women were photographers at the beginning why because it wasn't colonized and so it's this is the same kind of um, in in a way this is a similar moment Mm -hmm. and I agree that being a if you can we we're very good at when new spaces are created
1: frankly that's where women go and so your uh, way you're organized is often different. You're doing exhibitions around themes and you as you say, you're promoting artists who might've been neglected, but then you've seen like maybe 10, 20 years later, they become um, mm-hmm. the star figures. So it's a, yes, it's advocacy as well. Yeah. So what's me a little bit of some of those, uh, the, your unique mission you've spoken about, but some of the unique challenges and responsibilities that you have being a kind of,
2: yes we all here are very dedicated at the museum uh, and we feel a tremendous responsibility uh, in terms of uh, the art that we exhibit so in thematic exhibitions uh, like the upcoming women to watch exhibition here at the museum uh, which opens in uh, early october um, that is a project that is becoming a signature project for us we have a number 20, over 22 national and international committees of the museum that do outreach work in their regions on behalf of women artists. I think we have 17, um, no, 15 state or national committees uh, which are in the states, and then we have committees in Europe and uh, South America, and also in North America in Canada. And so every two to three years, we have a Women to Watch exhibition, which has a theme. And this year it's called, it's paper and it's called Paper Routes. And we have all these committees work with us. We have a local curator from their region, and that could be uh, anyone from um, a curator at the Tate, for example, for our UK committee, or a curator from the Mississippi Museum of Art if for our Mississippi uh, State Committee um, and we try to work with the best curators in that region uh, they select a group of artists who are doing incredible work in paper and then from that group oftentimes three to five artists from each committee um, our curators Aureen Zara and Ginny Trainer, tease out a theme and so all the artist's work is valued, but from that a group of different kinds of work, a disparate work, a theme is developed. And this year we have 22 artists who will be part of Women To Watch in Paper Roots. And the show is just being installed downstairs in the galleries now. So when it opens with a catalog, it'll be oftentimes the first time an artist's work has been seen either here in Washington very often or sometimes even in a major museum and so we look at emerging and or underrepresented artists who whose talent really needs to be better known we find that these thematic exhibitions are sometimes harder to explain to the public but the 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 quality of the work is there, and we see this over and over. I believe this is our fifth, uh, or sixth Women to Watch uh, uh, project. And it allows uh, people here in Washington, and now soon online via a video component that will showcase all of the artists and and the galleries. uh, People will really be able to get a sense of artists who they probably do not know, but who should become uh, better, much better known and that oftentimes gives a boost to that artist's career and that is part of the idea of what we uh, do for contemporary art but it, there's also historical art and that's that was part of the original raison d'etre reason for being of the museum and so we look to uh, showcase historical artists as well and we know that there's a certain level of popular support for historical artists because again there are artists uh, like Bautier who was from Flanders who uh, was very well known in her era of uh, the Baroque Um, she uh, was um, uh, she's the focus. She was the focus just recently of an exhibition in Europe, but has her work has never been seen in the United States. So why not bring uh, a Vautier exhibition here uh, to Washington, which is something we'll be we're working on uh, in the future.
1: I just think that that's wonderful what you've done with committees which are different than this kind of friends groups it's a real I think that the fact that you're giving a sense of ownership and Mm -hmm. that you're about listening as much as you are about showcasing and I think that it says something it's this collective and I think that it also speaks to if we as women may take ownership for that way of collaborating which is which is a little bit different than um, maybe what's traditionally a male competitive that if we're gonna rise we're going to listen and we're going to work together like that so i would so if because of course you're you're having to represent women in the arts and you're asking all people from all these states and countries you get a big list i would i would (laughs) let that must be a lot of work to go through it do you have or will you be having a digital component where some of those who have been nominated who might not have had the final selection but they can be shared sort of an idea of the larger circle
2: Yes, and in fact, that's something, frankly, that the committees themselves do. Each of them have a website, and they actually have all announced their winners some time ago. Um, we have connections. We have a link to those websites, and so people have the opportunity to look at that at any time. Um, I, You know, I... I know that there's a lot in development for that exhibition, especially because this year in particular, people are not able to travel as much. And so uh, my guess is that we will have that component of the other artists who were part of the process. And as I like to say, we that we're all um, selected, essentially to be honored by women to watch even if the final selection here in Washington is just a subset of that. But I think that's been an important concept all along for the project. And it is, um, I, I think it is a little, it is quite different than how other friends groups work. Most other friends groups, frankly, are about funding. That's what they're there for although certainly they try to promote, they certainly ha, are knowledgeable about artists in their region, but generally a friends group for the Hermitage or the Louvre, uh, it's really to support the operations of that those organizations.
0: Yeah, you were talking about um, in a post-COVID world kind yeah. of what sells, and generally that's historical, academic type of painting, um, but yet there's a demand now in this changing environment for contemporary art and themes. And what struck me when I came to visit your museum the other day was how you juxtapose, say, a historical work by maybe Clara Peters or someone like that with a more modern or contemporary artist. So I wanted to kind of get your take on that, why you make some of these curatorial choices, specifically in your exhibition highlights on the third floor, which is my favorite part and um, how you continue to make these kinds of parallels, maybe even with technology in the future.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I, I really took interest in those curatorial choices and would love to hear
2: your thoughts. So the, the way we ex- exhibit the collection is based on themes, uh, themes that are developed by our curatorial team and often in conjunction with our educators as, as well as our library. Um, and the reason for this goes back a really long way. It goes back to the founding of the museum at a time when frankly, when I was a curator, we did, I did not have enough works in the collection to be able to show works, show the collection thematically. So the question becomes why did we want to do that? And the answer is that in some ways Uh, particularly with our collection which is mostly European and American, when you show work chronologically, chronology tends to subvert or to discount uh, women and people of color. Because technically we show up sort of late to the game, the training opportunities were different. Um, If you look at the 18th century you find some uh, history painting, but you find a lot of portraits, you find still lifes, various sorts of um, imagery or types of painting that in the hierarchy women were seen as being able to do, but men were able to do other kinds of work with, which were highest in the hierarchy. And so I, we never were really comfortable with this notion of a chron- chronology that, that perpetrated or p- put forward a hierarchy in the arts. We also have not really made the distinction uh, between what would be considered uh, craft or decorative arts uh, along that hierarchy. And so again, the question became, well, how do you um, privilege and give value to uh, women artists' works when they might have been devalued in the past based on what was essentially a male canon or hierarchy? So, some four or five years ago, um, my uh, charge to our chief curator and our uh, team was, do we have enough works now in the collection, because the collection is about 5,000 works now, when I started it was about 600, so do we have enough works now to be able to create create thematic uh, installations within our galleries, our uh, collection galleries, that tease out themes that are important vis-a-vis women, but yet also just important. And can we mix the the different eras uh, in a way that's responsible, where the art really talks to one another, the pieces really talk to one another. And so this is, we're on our second iteration of this kind of project, and it works extremely well. The other thing too, that is really interesting is that we find, based on the important research that we've done, vis-a-vis our image and persona outside, uh, outside the museum, that many, many people come to us because we have, uh, because of contemporary art. And they're very interested in seeing contemporary art, which goes a little bit against the idea of many art, many museums, where the historical work seems to be most important to people. I think that's a partly a realization that the National Museum, that women artists came later into the game, and so modern and contemporary art is where women artists have really shown their stuff, if you will. And so the historical work, while it's very important to the story, is um, needs to be interspersed and uh, looked at in relationship to contemporary art and contemporary themes so as to continue to um, to have a, a real relevance and so that's a curious thing for us because it's people are coming to us uh, for something we have to offer that might be different than the large municipal or encyclopedic museum so in a way we've been able to Shift the discussion, and also still showcase those uh, great, uh, persevering, exceptional talents of the past that really, pr- that really were able to um, succeed way against the odds, totally against the odds.
0: My name is Catherine Capristo, and I am a student of art history at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. As the National Museum of Women in the Arts is essentially in my backyard, I was honored to virtually sit down with Susan Fisher Sterling for this interview as it provided me with insight into the ever-changing world of museums, representation, and art. But I think my biggest takeaway as both a student of art history and someone who just likes to play around with paints in her free time, is that one has to be current in order to keep up with the field, with the immense talent that is out there and with the world as a whole. I think the National Museum of Women in the Arts did just that. They took a changing world and then inserted women, who were previously neglected from the canon, right into the center of it all, with the full force and passion of the women artists that drove them to tell this story. Susan Fisher Sterling is the epitome of the curator that I would love to be. She takes in her surroundings and then asks herself, well, how can I be current? How can I keep up with the times? and recognize important shifts in my world all while doing the amazing work of celebrating art and women across centuries
1: it's interesting in how you're able to with both with your museum which is to say is the only one in in the world devoted to celebrating women's arts and then you can both change the conversation and break the mold and give people what they're not expecting to see you know, I've heard it because I'm having a lot of conversations with museum directors and uh, curators. But this this need to reinvent the museum. I was just speaking with Chris Durkin this morning, and he was uh, saying about how his, he's really excited. I mean, you 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 are mentioning also that you feel like some things could you know go backwards for, yeah. for women artists, but um, that it's a really exciting time for museums too because it's very difficult times. Yes, and so everything there's a possibility of things being reinvented because it has to be reinvented
2: right and and i think that if you i mean i i was just reading a, an article from june <laughs> in the in the art newspaper that talked about the future of museums um, i've tried to stay away from a lot of that kind of reading because i think in some ways when you're in the middle of redefining yourself now digitally and uh thinking what what offerings would work best for your audiences. You really have to stay on that track. But then when you have a minute to breathe, it's really good to catch up with what is uh, the discussion in the field. And certainly one of those catch up times was at the Alliance of American Museums uh, conference this year where the uh, subject was really uh, all about representation, enfranchisement, inclusion, and um, how museums in the U.S. and in this case in particular, because it's the American Alliance, that this how to um, make sure that we are really representing and working with with our diverse populations. And so I think when you talk about how we're reinventing ourselves, one of the key things that we have been working on already but will continue to put great effort toward is not just what our exhibition schedule is, where we have been very much uh, interested always from the beginning in enfranchising people of color, um, but in addition to make sure that the collections uh, are similarly uh, BIPOC. uh, That's uh, certainly uh, was already part of our agenda, but the times really dictate greater urgency in that regard. And that's something that is a point of discussion for us. The digital component as well, we've had a, now a ton more experience with that, frankly, because of COVID and I don't see any silver linings to the pandemic, to be honest with you. I'm not. I'm really very much a realist about what it means to lose uh, the population that we have, and also to see the how pandemics work in a global culture. But I I do feel that there are things that we have been able to adjust to, and create digitally that will allow us to um, reach out in a way that we have not. In the course of daily business in the past years been able to do so in some ways, the uh, pandemic provided us with an op- opportunity to experiment uh, digitally when we ha- when we really did not put those F eff- could not put those efforts forward when we were running the museum day to day. And had ver- lots, you know, when in person visitation and in person experience was really the focus so I do see this ability for our audience to grow uh, monumentally uh, through the uh, our our now ju- not just experimentation but our continued innovation uh, with through digital media, and that's something that that will continue even now as we're open to the public since August first. Although our numbers are um, capped by uh, municipal. Uh, local regulations. Those are two ways in which we're we're
1: really uh, looking to uh, make a mark. And it's so interesting because, and yes, you were speaking about the the component in the museums, and I know you have artist talks, and you have a number of other initiatives um, that are, you know, beyond the presentation of work. So you have a, a you've had you've worked directly with artists, um, with curators. What, beyond the numbers, beyond pushing up those numbers of representation, what has been the the evolution in terms of the way uh, women artists are being shown or being perceived? Mm
2: -hmm. So um, yes, I can, I'm happy to speak to that because actually that's I think that's one of the most exciting things about about the museum is when our founder, Mrs. Holliday, created, helped work to create with many other people, work to create the museum. She did so with the idea of reinserting women into the history of art. That was really her goal. She was very much a uh, an. A visionary product of her age. She understood from her own collection how difficult it was to find work by women artists, how poorly represented they were in the U.S., although better represented historically in European collections, but Because her revelation, both in the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, and then the Prado in Madrid, where she saw, for the first time, the work of Clara Paters, the Flemish artist from the 17th century whose and Paters was the first work that she bought by a woman artist, never intending to create a museum, but just intending to collect. Um, She really came to believe, a la Linda Nocklin. Anne Sutherland Harris, uh, Eleanor Tufts, um, and others, <clears throat> that it was very important to rescue these women from the dustbin of history. And she felt that creating a museum that was dedicated to that was really uh, tremendously important. She used to say, as she got various kinds of criticism about the museum, either as a ghettoizing or segregating institution, she would say to everybody, you're absolutely right. It would be wonderful if things were equal and women were being put into all the museums and, that all, and this was all gonna happen in the next year. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. So this is a really good way to having this museum is a really good way to begin to make that difference. So, parity is a hard thing to reach. Um, More than parity is even harder, but the key thing that Mrs. Holliday believed is you have to start somewhere, and here's a place where we can start. And it's funny also, because the museum's this wedge-shaped building. It's a former Masonic temple in the heart of Washington, D.C. And as a wedge-shaped building, it's, it's, um, it points right at Treasury and the White House and Ala la Anais Min and her Delta of Venus. I just have always thought that that was a very trenchant uh, symbol of this V-shaped building pointed at those very patriarchal places of power. So the position in Washington DC is interesting. The concept was out of, was in some ways uh, enfranchising a lot of what uh, feminist art historians were doing. But at the same time, it, um, it had a more traditional museum model that a lot of patrons and others believed in. And so it had a lot of, it had success as well as being controversial. So fast forward about 25 30 years 25 years it became apparent to us that it was very important to think more in a in a larger way about the um, about how women artists and how women generally operate uh, within the world and how could the, this museum think about itself in a way that was perhaps more continually relevant to uh, new generations. And the idea that we really realized based on having spoken to uh, a large group of people, it looked at all of the things we'd done in the past and uh, talked about things we could do in the future. The shift became from being a museum that um, reinserted women into into the history of art to a more uh, inclusive agenda which is to champion women through the arts. It allows for the excellence of women. It enables the museum to have programs like the Women Arts and Social Change Programming that involves women artists at the center of social change or social action. It also talks about women as change agents. And so the museum's that sort of our permission to do more was created uh, in that new uh, way of thinking about ourselves. While at the same time, we continued to do the work of the past, which was reinserting women into the history of art or enabling us to um, showcase or bring to the fore contemporary women artists who were doing great work and so it allowed us to bridge the past with the present and see uh, that sort of future for ourselves that actually it turns out with especially with things like our thematic installation of the collection the women arts and social change programming the kinds of library shows like uh, our Linda Nochlin exhibition Maverick She um, our show of uh, Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex, which was a mise-en-scene that we created near ne- right next to our library. All those sorts of things begin to uh, be able to enfranchise uh, women through the idea of uh, women artists as exemplary. And we're able to carry that forward through conversations that really are about breaking those barriers. Uh, and making sure that women are seen as capable across many different disciplines. So again, like in that wedge-shaped building, the art and women are the wedge and in order for
1: us to champion
2: women in a a broader sense.
1: I just want to go back to, because you mentioned Simone de Beauvoir, I'm I'm calling you France, uh, Paris, and I know that also the museum one the, I think it was the first organization to win the Simone de Beauvoir Prize, is that nice. correct? Yes. Yes, tell us a bit about
2: that because it's a, quite an honor. It was quite an honor um, and very, um, and again, somewhat controversial. I, I believe that, so we have a committee in Paris uh, that does, grass does this uh, work on behalf of women artists uh, in France, but especially in Paris itself. We had this unique opportunity uh, through the kinds of connections that, you know, women make for the Simone de Beauvoir Foundation to learn about us. And in learning about us, um, we had become, I guess we had come of age, if you will. A number of the members of that board, uh, we a- applied, obviously, we were asked, we you can apply to uh, become, uh, a, an awardee and when we applied there, the idea that an organization would apply was something novel. I think that probably was in our favor but I believe that the most important thing that the prize was about was promote the promotion of the cause of women and because the museum was making this turn Uh, through the arts to championing uh, women, I think we became even more more central to the kinds of issues that Simone de Beauvoir was speaking to. And so um, that was probably the edge that pushed us into the category where they would say, yes, they are certainly deserving of this award, is that forward-thinking idea that the arts really can be the champion, can be the um, uh, and that that a museum can be a space where social discourse takes place that actually promotes not just awareness but also action on behalf not just of women artists but causes that are extremely important to women and girls. And it was at that um, linchpin moment or intersectional point that we received that award. I can't say it wasn't, it was without controversy. There were certain members, I believe, of the governing body uh, of the group that were concerned about giving the prize to an organization, especially an organization that uh, came off of a traditional museum model. But I guess we were able to prove, it proved out that what we were doing was uh, quite uh, in the spirit of uh, Madame de Beauvoir.
0: Speaking about um, facilitating conversation and things yes. like that and bringing women into the narrative of not only the past and today, I know that silver linings are pretty hard to come by yeah. um, with this pandemic, but um, this museum is has great potential for conversations and change. So my question is with COVID, with the pandemic and the current racial tensions in the United States today. I imagine the artistic response is going to be very, very large towards the end of this. Um, So I just wanted to ask how you see the museum, including this narrative, within your wider story of women artists, or is it too soon to tell? Do you have any ideas about how this will work?
2: Um, Well, I have a friend collecting all these masks by women artists. Uh, I would uh, uh, give that as a hint to anyone on in your audience, start collecting those, those masks. Um, we like multiples, we think they're perfectly valuable and, and wonderful to have, and um, certainly it helps up artists who have moved in that direction in order to continue to be uh, creative and also create a revenue stream, uh, which so many of us need at this critical juncture. So the truth is, you're right, we don't know. We know a lot of art is being made. In fact, as you all uh, may know, with, when we had the protests in Washington, D.C., there was a period of time when uh, we did need to board our, up our windows uh, at the museum. And um, this was after uh, President Trump uh, went over to the church across the street from the White House and stood with his Bible and that was right after the violence but there was a concern that there might be additional um, protests or violence from other quarters Uh, and you all can uh, uh, understand what that is like and the museum is only two blocks from that area and so we were told by our downtown dc business improvement district that we might want to um put some plywood on our windows but we didn't just do that we actually commissioned several of the artists who were part of two artists who were part of the black lives matter project that was down 16th street we talked one of them in particular uh, did one of the windows one of our major windows and created a mural for us which we now have in our uh, storage facility and another artist from washington dc also involved in the black lives matter project created a couple of other uh inspirational uh plywood pieces so we went with the mural project Uh, we started to create murals before we even knew there was a mural project and so then we We're part of a larger um, uh, project uh, that was really happening all around the city. We now find so great minds think alike. Uh, The arts are always a place where you can find uh, expression at a time of protest, unrest, uh, um, bringing issues to the fore that are very important. So that's a small thing. Um, What's interesting is we had already planned in our women arts and social change programming this year to do a. to create a series, our head of that, uh, Milani Douglas, uh, created a program called Reclamation. I'm going to get it wrong, rituals, re- r- resolutions, and uh, and I can't remember the third. The important thing about Reclamation is it was using recipes, so food and rituals, to be able to uh, talk about how um, not only artists who work with food but also what are the rituals what are the recipes that have meaning that bring um, culture forward uh, and give people a sense of belonging uh, in the world and there was there also was always a wellness component to that so if you take a look at the women arts and social change programming this year in reclamation it's all about food, food justice, culinary justice um, and also about artists who deal with these issues uh, through their work. So how strange that we should be having the pandemic, which has created food shortages, as well as issues about how food deserts and other things. It just, it plays right into the discussion, uh, the national uh, dialogue that uh, we're having now. So it's interesting how here again, sometimes, sometimes, the ideas that percolate in the art world, I mean, we really are ciphers, uh, not just ciphers, but also I- integrally involved in these issues that impor- are important to our communities. And you can see we were how what's happening with the pandemic is now layered upon what was already a concern that was our focus for the year in that programming. So out of all those programs, uh, come various actions that people in conversation through breakout groups now because we're doing all this work digitally. I mean before this we used to come together for Sunday suppers or other kinds of breakout groups, um, uh, sometimes even a catalyst cocktail hour where a particular topic was taken up and then actions were discussed thereafter. but it's a very it's a really good model for how you can bridge arts and social change and point to women and artists as being at the center of that. So that I think will certainly be something that continues and my hope is that other institutions, some there are other institutions who have other kinds of programs like this um, that really uh, are meant to be engaging and my hope is that ultimately social policy uh, will be impacted by the, some of the actions that we uh, take now. So I know that's a long answer, but that's something that will continue for us. When it comes to the art, it's, it is early in the story, um, but we know that this is going to be, well, a difficult period for artists Although, I think Marina Abramovic said it's not so difficult for her because she has all these amazing ideas. Um, so if you think about the ideas that are being uh, developed and the way in which the artistic uh, community is looking to um, uh, their art as being a- and the kinds of work that will be produced, I think there are going to be lots and lots of major exhibitions. And one last thing I wanna mention, although I don't know what will come of this, one of the projects that I talked about with our chief curator and deputy director, Katie Watt, is we were really interested in spirituality as a topic uh, before the pandemic. Um, I was thinking back on Maurice Tuckman's exhibition at LA County called The Spiritual in Art. And one of the thoughts I've been having, and I don't know if we'll work on this, but it's something that continues to be forward, at the forefront of my mind, is it will be interesting to talk about uh, spirituality in the sense of um, how do you have joy, how do you keep a spiritual life, how do you feel connected uh, in that sort of uh, other, to other spaces, other sorts of thoughts Um, In the middle, in the midst of difficult times, what kind of artwork might that might come of that and is the spiritual life, is our spiritual life something that we should take very seriously, not just during the pandemic, but afterwards. So we'll see. I think there are lots and lots of possibilities. And my guess is my curators will come up with, if not this idea, even better ideas for what we can do moving forward. But I think the pandemic, uh, the results of the pandemic, and the aftermath of it will definitely uh, be uh, a creative boon to uh, uh, many, many people.
1: Yes, I think so. In terms of the kind of, you know, different modes of reflection, I don't want to um, switch. It's like almost the opposite of spirituality. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, with the spirituality being the collective, and you know, in religious texts and things being often by a not many anonymous hands or that but also the other side of what is art history is often concerned with genius we were, you're were talking a bit about art stars yeah. i marina uh, abramovic is uh, like one of the bold women but it seems like the you know the ways that women have attained power and respect their paths to it are is different than the male artists or just you know just there's a different approach about what we can get away with. And so I'm interested, I guess, because I just did recently did this interview with the music Picasso president, and so sure we're discussing this, and we think about Picasso, you know, the big male names. I just the concept of genius, and I was wondering what you thought about that, and also you know, those, those, those names who are in your personal canon who are women. So,
2: genius is such an interesting term, just like visionary. Uh, uh, the, who decides, Wh- who decides. Um, and strangely enough, we were having this, well, maybe not so strangely, we were having this uh, conversation about the who decides about genius, because certainly um, you have this idea of the solitary genius, uh, the the rebel, the working in the garret, uh, the idea that um, always genius will out, no matter what. And these people, um, geniuses always are, know exactly what they're uh, thinking about, and they create this um, amazing work, and everybody recognizes it right away. But in actuality, genius is a uh, certainly there are interesting ways to think about mathematical genius. There are also interesting ways to think about artistic genius, um, a genius for people who are social philosophers, all different manner of, uh, of things that people call genius. The truth is there's a system that props that up and says and is able to uh, and wants to say This person's a genius, but that person's not. And most often, um, that leads to a whole body of folks who are left out. Because at least in the past, uh, with all kinds of 19th century brain studies, there were all these studies that wanted to prove inferiority of everybody other than a white male. And so I think that the concept of genius, at this point in my world, is debunked. But that doesn't mean that I don't want women artists to be seen as geniuses, because that's a term that people understand in the, popular, in the world of the popular press, or the, just the, the general population. So you, you do have to play on the fe- you you want to play on the field that's given, Just because, I I like to say, even like I remember when I was working with Carrie Mae Weems, just because there's such a thing as the male gaze doesn't mean you shouldn't stare that gaze down. And I feel the same thing in terms of genius. While I don't really believe in the concept as it's been created systemically, I do believe that I I, I don't want to miss the opportunity, if you will, to stick someone's face in into that realm and say this person is just the most amazing artist you know I think there are so many women geniuses that I in the world of art so many great women artists that I don't want to um, I don't want to single too too many out but I think that certainly an artist like uh, Carrie Weems, uh, uh, Marina Abramovic, uh, Sheila Hicks is a textile artist has always been seen as working in textiles and wasn't necessarily, her work doesn't necessarily valued the same way. I I think there are many, many women artists and who qualify in that uh, realm. And I don't, I I have to say, I don't always think that it's the artists that are the most popular uh, who are necessarily uh, the most, uh, the people I would, uh, say are uh, are necessarily qualified for the term of genius. I mean, I do I do believe that uh, uh, Sonia Clark is just an amazing talent, and I'm really glad that we'll c- have her create her first mid-career survey here at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And I I guess I would say that I mean some of the artists who I uh, who I look at at this point. I mean think about uh, uh, the artist Amy Sherald. We were one of the first uh, museums to own her work thanks to a, a, a collector in Baltimore who knew of her. Um, we, You think about Judy Chicago's reputation, which was in the dumper for many, many years. I don't mean that in Judy's sense. I mean she always understood her genius, but now her work is um, she's seen as being that great progenitor. In fact, she's one of time was one of Time magazine's 100 most influential women of recent history, and so that's really interesting to think of. I think of someone like Rose Wiley, who for many many years was working in isolation, but now in her 80s is now seen as a great talent in the UK. Um, I happen to um, lo- love the work of. Um, uh, uh, a uh, Pakistani American artist, Ambreen Butt, whose works we've shown. Uh, I love Delita Martin. So I, I think that the whole notion that there are just a few geniuses in the world is is just a fallacy, and we should just get rid of that. And we should think very seriously of why I love Nikki de Saint Phalle, and I have a work of hers right behind me. Until. Camille Moreno did that major exhibition of Niki de Saint Phalle pa- at, yeah, at the Grand Palais a few years ago. Um, French people maybe knew that she was important but the rest of the world did not and Saint Fall was the first artist we had on our sculpture alley on our right in front of the museum when we created that project in 2010 and I'm still looking forward to Working with uh, Saint Paul's family on some kind of major project uh, here in Washington, because there's an example of a genius who knew she was, but really did not get the recognition in her lifetime, uh, and is now being uh, rediscovered. So even in contemporary art, modern and contemporary art, that rediscovery happens as well, uh, and I think that I think that we. We rediscover genius
1: for ourselves in
2: every generation.
1: I like to think of someone who's extremely talented or committed or is doing something that the world needs in some way, has a hunger for. Um, but I think that's, uh, it's almost sometimes you judge geniuses, like, uh, if they, they must be a genius because to get away with the other things they did, they might be in prison. And that, that's how I think, like retrospectively, if we think of some men, that's right. an exaggeration. It's like, oh, they must have been talented because how?
2: <laughs> yes. The sort of women who dared concept, yes.
1: uh, uh,
2: is really, is still very important, but I think just like uh, visionary it, it's 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 an in, in it's an ineffable quality and yet it's all around us
1: and we we really shouldn't forget that we're an educational initiative as we look to the future mm-hmm. um, the kind of we have a number of our systems that need modifying i would say um mm-hmm. i would think about the kind of world we're leaving to future generations what are some things you'd like to change what do you love about the arts and why is it important um, i i have just a couple of thoughts that i
2: wanted to bring forward uh, one is that we really do know that museums are changing dramatically and the, i don't and and we've been speaking about this in the museum proper and also through all kinds of uh, channels that are, um, as I like to call them, the museum social clubs, the various um, organizations that we're a part of. And I, I really believe that the way in which museums are working now and will be working in the future, are going to be very different that curatorial or authorial voice has already shifted and will continue to shift to be very much about the intersection of thinking but amongst museum people who are in the museum and people who are not in the museum but who value what museums have to offer and so that's very different than the sort of as I almost like the curatorial genius authorial voice. So that is changing. Uh, that's already changed now. And and we look to that, uh, frankly, in some ways, even the Women to Watch program has some of that. Um, our education programming certainly uh, does a lot with that. And so the permeability, I, I sometimes wish that our building wasn't such um, Heroic architecture, where it's closed off to the outside because it's masonry. I wish it were more open on the first floor in glass, because that kind of permeability uh, is something that truly is the future of um, of museums. Um, I and I I also uh, believe, and I think we have a real uh, challenge uh, when it comes to. Um, whether we maintain the trust of uh, that we've uh, really uh, been given by the public uh, over many years. Um, museums are seen as some of the most trusted institutions uh, in the world, and obviously we want to keep that uh, level of trust. But that will likely mean a, a great shift, frankly, in the kinds of art we show, the different types of artists who may be um, welcome here in a way that is different, um, the repre- proper representation of uh, uh, minority populations. The bre- again, the next breaking down, which has already happened in academe and is already happening at this museum, is the idea that the kinds of standards that were um, are standards of the past that disenfranchise some and enfranchise a very small group of of others uh, that that is not going to be the future of museums and so how you develop a narrative that is that enfranchising narrative and you prove it to the public every day is uh, is the other piece of this of this project and so in and those things are very much linked And I really believe museums uh, are on the path to look very, very different, and to provide even more personal, but more socially responsible um, experience in the future. And that's very different than some of the readings I've seen lately that tell museums to go back to the old style of just being uh, places where you look at a collection. I think that's not the direction. I I don't believe that that's the direction we're going in. So I just put put out those two thoughts because I I think that those are the simplest things to say and some of the hardest things to do.
0: Uh, just as a young person I, and a young woman who's going into art history, this is just an incredible place to have in my backyard and to see how it'll change and I love how you spoke to the museum becoming more socially responsible and that um, museums ensure trust Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that you do a wonderful job of that and um, yeah I just think that you really do speak to a generational younger woman clientele um, and I'm sure that'll um, be continuing in the future.
2: Well I think everything is an evolution. Um, but I also think there's a little bit of revolution in every evolution. So we just have to Absolutely. keep pushing that forward.
1: Okay. And I, don't, I want to thank you, Susan Fisher Sterling, for all and the National Museum of Women in the Arts, for your over, I think, 32 years of service. Um, all you've done to expand our appreciation and awareness of female artists, engaging our imaginations, sharing stories behind art, fostering scholarship, and not just celebrating women artists, but in so doing, raising the voices of all women. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
0: This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Catherine Capristo with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Catherine Capristo. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolus and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info. For an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.